we confess that when our world is shaken, we are shaken. Would you meet us where we are in that today, each one of us specifically? And would you really speak to us through your word? May it not return void. May it give you glory so that we may go out of here with hearts changed by you so that we can run the race you have chosen for each of us with endurance. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the people that we've been reading about in Hebrews, the recipients, um, were really not so different from us. If we lived back in the day, if we were Jewish, we might have been friends, we might have been neighbors, we might have been them, actually. Um, They uh, sought after God. They knew his scriptures, they tried to obey them, and they really hungered and thirsted after God. And in that hunger and thirst, they had found their promised Messiah, Jesus, the way. But we know now from our passage that they're considering forsaking him and going back to the old way, from distancing themselves from him and returning to the old covenant. Okay, so why would, why would they do that? Why would they come to Jesus and yet be tempted to turn back? That's really the crux of our passage today. Well, they would be tempted to do that because they've been shaken. They'd already come to Jesus, but as time went on, their life was getting increasingly hard. They were mocked, they were ostracized, they were raided and robbed, and even the unthinkable. We've read that they... um, had experienced stoning to the point of death. Relationships would have been affected. Families might have been torn apart. Um, Neighbors might have ostracized them. And it might have looked like really maybe this thing, this new way was falling apart. They were losing hope and they were losing endurance. Maybe holding on to Jesus, but nothing else was too hard after all. It was clear that they needed reminding of what they were leaving, of what they were going back to, the shakable kingdom of Mount Sinai, and the cost for doing it. So that brings us to our first few verses. Let me read it. For you've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. We know that previously God had freed his people from slavery in Egypt. He'd led them out under the direction of Moses. And on their way to the promised land, they were going through the wilderness and to Mount Sinai, where they would receive God's law and also received their national identity as a nation belonging to God. God said to Moses, I'll come there in a thick cloud on top of the mountain, and when I speak to you, they're going to be able to hear me too. And they can approach the mountain when they hear the trumpet sound. Sounds great, right? An up-close and personal encounter with God. Isn't that what we all want? But our passage reminds us that that wasn't quite the case. You see, God had come to them, but instead of seeing him, they saw a blazing fire. They experienced darkness and gloom. 
He came to them, but instead of their experience being one of peace and calm, it was a storm and a tempest. He had come to them, but instead of their being able to draw near to him, they were kept at a distance in his mercy, honestly, by a barrier around the mountain, lest they approach and die. And as he had promised, they had heard his voice all right, but it was so terrifyingly holy and so deafening that it shook the ground underneath them so that they begged for God to stop talking directly to them and to do it instead through a mediator, Moses. And even that mediator, Moses said, I tremble in fear. Their experience of God's kingdom was one of terrifying shaking, of distance, and a powerlessness to draw near. You see, this temporary kingdom of the visible would only be a shadow of the eternal, invisible kingdom yet to come. Clearly, they were in need of a better mediator, Jesus, who would usher in the unshakable kingdom of Mount Zion. And we pick it up in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We can just hear their pastor's passion as he reminds them that they have already come to what's better. They've already come to Jesus and to his better kingdom. For now, it's invisible, but it's real. And they are citizens of that kingdom, citizens of the heavenly kingdom of Mount Zion. And this is not a temporary dwelling place of God. This is his permanent dwelling place. They will dwell with him. A city that they don't need to experience with fear and wanting to distance and run away, but one of feasting and celebrating. I was thinking of this this morning and I thought, can you imagine sitting at a banquet table next to an angel? I mean, they are going to dwell with angels and all those in Christ who had come before them. They'll be in the presence of God, the judge of all. The same God who made the the ground underneath uh, shake at Mount Sinai. But they can draw near. And why? Because they have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. The one who took their judgment on himself in his death so that death would pass over them forever. And his blood consecrates this new covenant for ever before the Father, the covenant of grace that says, I love you, I forgive you, I purchase you, I cleanse you, I protect you, I keep you, I'll be with you always and forever near. This church needed to be reminded of the better way, but they also needed to be reminded of the cost for refusing it. In verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Their pastor issued this final warning. There is a cost for turning back. Our God is a consuming fire. Certainly, they would have known that from hearing about Mount Sinai. If that is such a great judgment there, how much greater would the judgment be for losing endurance and trading the invisible for the visible? We can read this and we can look at them and we can gain understanding by now. Some of us have joked in our discussion group, it's taken a little bit of endurance to go through Hebrews as we keep reading the same things over and over. Um, But here is where the passage inserts itself into our race. Because if we're honest, we too, when we are shaken, can find ourselves acting as if maybe holding on to Jesus and nothing more. It's just too hard. It's too costly. It's too unreasonable. We don't outright reject him, but at least he could do something. Give us something to keep us going. Lord, I'll follow you, but I need a break. You've got to give me more. I know this because I've experienced this. And I thought, I cannot teach about being shaken without sharing about being shaken. So I'm going to tell you my story today. And I hope I can get through it. Our um, first perfect granddaughter, uh, Hazel, was born to our youngest son, Clay, and his wife, Monique, on January 14, 2011. And about uh, a month later, Monique wrote this on February 24th. Our world was turned upside down. Our conversations had been filled with those whose shift it was to wake up at all hours, poopy diapers, gas or no gas, wake time, wiggle time, me feed, he burps. We were new parents to a beautiful little angel, Hazel. As is the case with any new parent, we had been on little sleep, but enjoying our time adjusting to this new life the Lord had blessed us with. So when we heard the words tumor, malignant, cancer, stage four lymphoma, chemo, the breath was knocked out of the both of us. My love, Clay, is 26, healthy, active, showing little or no symptoms of something so severe. The same man who took on P90X twice, the same man who doesn't drink Cokes because it dehydrates him, the same man who drinks at least four bottles of water a day, has cancer. I don't know how to even begin to explain the roller coaster of emotions we and our families have been feeling these last few days. Please continue to pray with us. I wish I could say that when I heard the news, my response was one of being up close and personal with Jesus. But mostly, I was really, really angry and really, really terrified. How could God allow this? Clay didn't deserve this. They had a brand new baby. He was in seminary, for goodness sakes. He wanted to serve God. (laughs) 
My number one job as a parent is to protect my children. My child was dying, and I was powerless. And really underneath that is that I'm really used to being in control. That's kind of my personality. It's kind of my capability. Um, And I thought, you know, I'm kind of used to just gaining understanding. And if I can understand something enough, I can fix it. And I can probably look pretty spiritual while I'm doing it. But I found out that everything that I was was of no use. And in the meantime, four weeks after Hazel was born, our second perfect granddaughter, Bradley, was born. So in the span of four weeks, we had baby, cancer, baby. Ultimate highs and incredible lows. A roller coaster. Well, um, Clay did... Regular treatment was not going to help him, but he did qualify for a trial, and so that trial took us down to MD Anderson. Uh, We went as a ragged and weak army, pretty much numb and in a state of shock, just trying to look and act as normal as we could. And um, I found that writing um, what I call loosely poetry um, kind of helped me try to cope, and I thought instead of describing my shaking and my efforts to exert influence into the situation, I might just read you a couple of those. Um, They're really short. You're going to go, that's a poem, but yeah. Okay. Um, The first one is called Supermom. My strong, sick son sits in front of me. I keep trying to look at him with x-ray vision, but I don't want him to know I'm doing that. The second one is called Hold the Mayo. I'm eating for two. I choose healthy things from the menu, hoping there's still enough of the umbilical cord left to tip the scale in his favor. Um, Clay's first night at the hospital was a horrible experience, and to condense, he didn't want to be alone. And, of course, Monique couldn't be there because she had a tiny baby, and so I stayed with him every night at the hospital. Um... I couldn't leave the room for too long, but I would have a morning ritual of getting a cup of coffee and taking my Bible and going out into one of the public spaces. And I mostly just stared at the words and cried out with silent groaning. But I remember specifically one um, morning while doing this, I just pictured myself at the bottom of a shaft of a well. Some of you may remember Jessica McClure that fell into that thing. It was that kind of a, um, a picture. I had really uh, reached bottom on just about every level. I felt totally alone, and um, I didn't have any hope. I, I just honestly didn't have any hope. And as I sat there in that well, I can't explain it. I can't give uh, a formula. But all of a sudden, ladies, I was not alone. I was not alone. I was still in the well. But Jesus was sitting there next to me. Seated. We've learned about being seated. His being seated. Nothing else changed. I still lamented our circumstances. I was still totally without control um, over the outcome. But Jesus was there 
he had entered my pain, and it was enough. I had let go of Jesus, but he had never let go of me. I had been angry with him, but he had forgiven me. I had stopped trusting him, but he had never stopped being trustworthy. He met me right where I was in the midst of all my mess. He was strong in my weakness. He was peace when everything else was chaos. He was able when I was not. And he held the future in his hand when I couldn't see it. Because of this, I was free to deeply experience my pain, but not be consumed by it. I could be honest with my questions and my doubts, but instead of feeling guilty about those and having those form a barrier where I couldn't draw near to him, I could run to him with those. I could ask him my whys with no guarantee of any outcome, but I knew also that this world was not our permanent kingdom. Things I could see were shakable, but I knew that we were citizens of his unshakable forever kingdom and that nothing could loose that grip. Because he loves me, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of my faith, allowed me to be shaken in order that the things that cannot be shaken in me may remain. And because of that, hope slowly started to be renewed. And it was really ironic. No matter how dire our circumstances were, I couldn't help but like see all these things around me to be grateful for. Things like the just random things like the piano player in the lobby or just passing some stranger who would smile at me were all of a sudden, and it's not to over-spiritualize it. This is really true. It was like God was giving me these gifts to let me know that he was near. And it was kind of like there were two kingdoms at hand, one that could be shaken and one that couldn't. Jesus lived the unshakable life for us because we cannot. He experienced the ultimate shaking, being separated from his father on the cross so that we would never be separated from him. And he died the unthinkable death in our place so that death would pass over us forever. Hebrews is really just one big exhortation to endure when we're shaken in our race. Yes, he warns us the cost for not persevering. Our God is a consuming fire. But he also encourages us to lay aside what encumbers us in our faith, telling us over and over this good news of the gospel. Jesus is the better messenger, prophet, hope, covenant, promise, sacrifice, and possession the abiding one. There is nothing that we could have that is better than Jesus. When we begin to look at our being shaken through the lens of this gospel, we begin to see and know that he is enough. And we begin to be transformed not only in spite of our circumstances, but in the midst of them. We're going to be shaken with trials. The Bible guarantees that, right? But when we are shaken, 
Let us tell ourselves and each other this gospel, and having our hope renewed by it, let us lay aside the things that can be shaken and run our race with endurance by setting our eyes on Jesus, the unshakable one who endured for us. I'd like to close with um, one last poem, and it's called Roller Coaster. Oh, my dear daughter, you are right. You do not like roller coasters, not one bit. They are too wild and too untamed for the way I have created you. You are careful and sure, thorough and sequential. Roller coasters are impetuous and unpredictable, sudden and changing. And yet, there are times, precious one, when in my infinite parental wisdom, I allow one to be put in your path. For sometimes you must call upon who you are not to become who you can be. Dear daughter, I am placing you on this ride, but I have tenderly chosen just the right seat for you. Your view will be only what I have ordained and nothing more. I will hold you safely with my right hand, and you will have my full protection and nothing less. To you, the path may seem fragile and dangerous, but rest in this. I have control over every piece, every hill, and every curve. There is not one part that has escaped my hand. The track looks worn only because it has been well-traveled and well-tested. I understand the journey seems long and feels scary, but knowing that, I have not placed you there alone. Look at all who ride with you. You may look at some and say, well, they ride with ease. But look more closely. There are others who are looking at you. To them, you look strong and brave. Oh, my dear daughter, remember what you have forgotten. You have looked at the ride. You have looked at the safety bar. And you have looked at others. Now look again. I have told you I hold you in with my hand. How could I do that unless I were right beside you? Did you not know? Have you not seen me? I was here ahead of you, waiting. Mine was the hand that took yours as you entered, leading you gently, guiding you to your seat. It is I who started the ride. I alone control it and call it to an end. My hand is on the controls, and my hand is on you. If I have gone behind you and before you, if I have allowed the ride, if I have chosen the seat, if I have given others to be with you, if I alone am in control, and if I sit beside you, what need is there for fear, for caution, or for your own careful control? So ride, my daughter, ride. Look not to the unknown, but to me. Dare to be who you are not because of who I am. Ride with abandon, and yes, even embrace the ride. In praise and worship, unloose your tight grip and raise your arms. Ride, my daughter, ride.